Welcome, friends. This is Cindy Silva. I'm here with Robert Bosnack, and we're going to have a conversation on alchemy, one of my favorite topics. Welcome, Robert. Well, thank you for having me. It's so great. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Um, so we're going to talk about a series of books that you have out on alchemy and um, dreaming, anything that wants to come into the uh, field to inspire people to... Um, well but you also have this, um, a technique, a healing technique that you created. And I'd love to integrate that as well because mm -hmm. I've heard about it. And I felt when I first heard about it, I felt something intuitive in my body. Like you need to go in that direction and learn more. So I hope we'll make time for that as well today. Well, yes, I, um, I developed a method called embodied imagination. And that is um, a way to help people flash back into their imagination, either by dreams or by memories, and to flash back into their imagination, explore it with your body, feel it in your body, and then uh, shift perspectives out of your habitual perspectives into non-habitual states. And then you get a completely different view. You actually shift reality into a completely different world. So that is um, what I do for a living. Mm, and so you work with clients doing that? Yes, I'm a psychoanalyst. I've been a psychoanalyst for about 50 years. And um, I am um, currently working with people. I'm, I mainly work with people in the arts, like musicians and uh, writers and actors and directors. And um, not, so, not only on psychotherapy, but on um, having the creative imagination come to the surface in a more profound way than normally. Mm -hmm. And so I've, I've used that also for myself when I wrote my series of novels called um, Red Sulfur. And Red Sulfur actually um, was created by me moving into that world and just looking around and waiting for my characters to do the action. So it's very similar in that way. Mm -hmm. And you have uh, mentioned that, that there's a difference between voluntary and involuntary imagination. Would you share a little bit? About um, well, the, the involuntary imagination is um, a place where you find yourself like a dream. A dream is an involuntary imagination. You didn't create your dream. You, you just find yourself there mm -hmm. and um, you find yourself in an environment and in that environment, um, you are in reality. You experience it as a, as a reality. You know it to be real. And um, you know it to be physical. Uh, however, when you wake up, you find out that it was not physical, but presented itself as physical. So I call it quasi-physical. So the involuntary imagination is a quasi-physical place where you find yourself that is entirely real. Uh, the... A voluntary imagination, however, is different. Voluntary imagination is um, the way that you are, now I'm going to imagine a tree or I'm going to imagine what I'm going to say next or those kind of things that you have some kind of control over that with your will. Over dreams, you have no control with your will. You can be lucid in a dream. And then there is um, a very modest modicum of control. But um, in ordinary dreaming, there's not. So I'm, I'm taking ordinary dreaming as my paradigm for the involuntary imagination. Mm -hmm. Thank you for clarifying that. And let's talk about your book, uh, your books. It's a series of books, Red it's Sulfur. It's a series of four books, yeah. Yes. It's a series of four alchemy. books, and it, it started... Um, so I've been interested in alchemy for the last 50 years because I went to the Jung Institute in Zurich and the first thing they have to learn is, is um, alchemy as a metaphor system. And I became really interested and have not left it alone. I, um, I um, am translating um, the alchemical text from the Latin. And um, so I'm very interested in it. And then... Um, I had to give a talk about alchemy, a lecture, um, and I was looking through um, the history of alchemy, which I do regularly. And then I found that there was a transmutation from lead into gold in 1666 that was verified by very reliable people like um, 
Benedict Spinoza, who was probably one of the greatest philosophers of the second millennium, uh, the mint master of the Netherlands. And the Netherlands at the time was a place of international trade. So uh, um, ascertaining that gold was actually gold was very important in the Netherlands. So the mint master of the Netherlands confirmed that there was a transmutation in, in that case also from silver to gold. And um, the uh, so what I did is, well, if that's true and that actually happened, then other things about alchemy would be true as well. And alchemy um, has the notion that it is, can create the panacea. The panacea is the, um, the medicine that heals everything. It can create eternal life. It can create uh, eternal youth, all these kinds of things. And so I thought the only way I can describe it is by way of fiction. And... Um, so I started out with this transmutation and then it immediately turned into a love story because alchemy is about love, right? Alchemy is about um, transforming, transmuting love into something more valuable. Love is very valuable, but it can create something that is super valuable, that is the gold because the alchemists say, our gold is not the vulgar gold, our gold is the highest value. So by way of love, creating the highest value. And so um, the alchemist uh, uh, falls in love with the female alchemist, and, um, but she can't have children. And she says, well, the, the woman that I brought up as my daughter, she might have our children for us. And you can see this is going to be an incredible disaster. So it's a constant disaster in this triangle of love. Meanwhile, what is happening is that um, science is taking over and science is just beginning. And all the alchemists, at the, all the scientists at the time, like Robert Boyle and Isaac Newton were alchemists. And so there was a, a time of the, of the fusion of alchemy and science and slowly science um, made itself independent and it became, uh, objectivity became important. Whereas for alchemy, it was not about objectivity, it was about participation. It's a different, completely different mindset. So it's a shift in that mindset. And that happened in the 17th century. And the 17th century was, I believe, the most important century for me, except for our own, because it's always your own century is the most important for you. But the 17th century, because what actually happened was the big battle for freedom of thought. Um, because um, the Church of Rome, um, was against science. The Church of Rome had um, banished uh, Galileo um, and it had burned Giordano Bruno on the stake. And it was very much, um, the Inquisition was very powerfully against science. And so the Protestant countries began to fight the Catholic countries for the freedom of science. And that was the beginning of um, the Royal Academy in England. And so um, I am describing the battle between Louis XIV, who is the proponent of the church, and um, William of Orange, who is the proponent of um, tolerance and free speech. And this battle is very central and they're all chasing these alchemists because they want their gold. And they're not just chased by kings and uh, and queens, they're also changed by phantoms who want to devour it all. And um, so that story develops over four books and um, it becomes totally fascinating because it was written by the characters. The characters did it. All I did was I shifted my reality into their world. I let that world develop and unfold. I learned about that world through looking at all the paintings I could see on Google, looking at all the paintings of that period, because there's a lot of paintings of the 17th century, as you know, in Holland. And um, so then that world became very real to me. And then I entered into it. And then the characters became active. And it became a totally fascinating story that was surprising to me from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. Sounds like it'll also be a great history lesson to read those books. Well, next next to that, and it's also an introduction to alchemy. So if people are interested in alchemy, um, the end of the book, I put a whole glossary of alchemical terms. Mm -hmm. And in it, um, it, it's real alchemy. And um, it's just all very strange to us because we are 
living in the scientific era. Whether you like science or not, there are lots of people that don't like science. Whether you like science or not, you're living in the scientific era. Otherwise, we wouldn't be seeing each other on this um, right. device that right. is created. The technology was created by science, and mm -hmm. science is based on the split between subject and object. Mm -hmm. So as you're describing the way that this was written through you, it sounds like there was an experience of involuntary imagination. Would you say that with these characters yes. coming through? It was an experience of involuntary imagination and I just lent them my craft. Mm -hmm. I'm a writer, I've written many, many books. And um, so um, I uh, let them talk and I described things that I saw and I used my skill as a writer um, to um, make it palpable and and viewable for people that come into this world. I imagine it had an all-chemical effect on you. It feels like a waking dream, right? Like you weren't sleeping, yes. but you were awake in well, a dream-like reality. Yeah, it had a very strong effect on, on me. I had a, a first reader and I married her. So it had a very strong effect on me. And um, it had a very strong effect on the notion that um, reality shifting is actually a possibility. And I'm very interested in reality shifting. It's a, an interest that is now shared by millions of people between 16 and 24. And um, so I'm very curious about that. And um, I've studied it now for 50 years. And I'm very glad that there's a whole new generation coming up that is passionately interested in it. Yes. Yeah. Well, isn't that all that's going on anyway? Is reality shifting? That is really what this experience. Um, well, yes, but it's um, uh, it's easy to say this now, but uh, twenty years ago, people didn't really think about that. Mm. Um, it's a very um, new ease that people have that you shift reality from your habitual consciousness into non-habitual states. Mm -hmm. People have done it by way of drugs, but um, to do it without medication and to do it without drugs and to do it just on the power of the involuntary imagination, I think is a tremendous development. And I'm very glad that there's so many young people interested in that stuff because it's drug free. Yeah. Yes. And you shared, I think I was listening to an interview with you where you shared you healed yourself with this technique. Did yes. You have a long term illness that you were able to finally. Yes, I, um, I had an illness that was incurable. I first um, almost died of it. And then um, I had it for a while. And then um, I was in so much pain all the time that I didn't notice that my appendix had ruptured. And then I almost died from that. But they couldn't find what the original thing was. And um, then at a certain point, I was in the hospital for 11 months. And then... Um, they still couldn't find it and they destroyed my whole intestinal flora. And then for three months it was over and then it started again. And then I said, I've had it. And that's when I went into analysis in Zurich and then I needed a staying permit. And so I uh, enrolled at the Jung Institute. And um, within two years of my analysis, all my symptoms ceased. Mm -hmm. And so I became very interested in the relationship between imagination and body because I worked very much in my analysis on dreaming and imagination. And I had seen that imagination can directly heal the body. And that's a very old notion. We're studying it again now with the studies of the placebo effect, which is about how imagination and expectation can heal you. Um, but it was the part of the origins of Western medicine. And it was the Western healing sanctuaries that were based on dreaming and that by way of dreaming you could encounter the healing force the healing god that would then um see to it that you would get healed so it's a very old system and it has worked for me beautifully and then 10 years ago it was found out that i had crohn's disease but i had never did, had done any treatment for it and um, so i've had crohn's disease for about 50 years without any symptoms so that's good yeah, that's really good. Yeah, I, 
I have um, an Oculus and been playing in that VR reality. And, you know, I've always said and known that the body doesn't know the difference between a real or an imagined reality, right? And well, they're both real. They're both real, but... Um, one is physical yeah. and one is not physical. Very good point. But really in this um, virtual reality, you can feel physiological changes just oh, by yeah. entering these other realities. You can feel it. It's not, there's no question that it's yeah. effective. Yeah. And so, um, and it's even stronger with dreaming because uh, dreaming is much more real than virtual reality. I think that it will take um, several generations for virtual reality to become as real as a dream. And so um, at this moment, virtual reality is a poor man's dream or a poor woman's dream. <laughs> and, um, uh, but if you help a person to flash back into their dreams, you are in a completely real world that surrounds you and all these these beings present themselves as physical to you and you can touch them and you can hear them, you can smell them. And um, uh, then you can realize that indeed, as exactly as what you're saying, the brain cannot distinguish between physical and non-physical reality. Mm -hmm. That's certainly where we're heading, right? I mean, technology, yes. yeah. I mean, technology can really see that. And I, yeah, think well, I, I think that we are moving to what I call um, a misaverse, M-I-S-C-A-verse, a mixed um, universe where um, there are, are people that can reality shift by themselves. There are people that are um, in the virtual world. There are people that are in the actual world and it's all going to be one big mixture. And um, you will be... Um, one of your best friends will be artificially intelligent. And so all these things are about to happen. We're on the threshold of it. And uh, that's why I think that um, this whole generation, the Gen Z, is so interested in reality shifting. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, yeah, for me, I see it like consciousness is seeking a form that allows its fullest expression, which means freedom. And it wants to have freedom through each of us each of itself as us, as these different forms. And in these reality, you know, when we're exposed to reality shifting, it's like consciousness has limitation in a human form, but when it uses the imagination, it, it goes beyond the limits of the physical form. I feel like yes. that's- what... And I, I, I think that this is not new, of course, right? It's not that this is a moment in consciousness where that is so special. Um, because it was that was true in the early uh, 17th century. It was true in the, uh, well, you know, mystics, right? Um, Hildegard von Bingen, 12th century, 13th century. Great mystic who moved through all kinds of worlds in that age, wrote the most gorgeous, beautiful mystical music. And yeah, so it has been going on all along. I think that maybe more people are becoming aware of it. Yeah. I think so. There's been like a, a quantum leap in that more people yeah. have access to, yeah. maybe through just the perception shift of that there is a possibility, right? When we change our perception of what's possible, we can then experience different things with different yeah. worlds. Yeah. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Wow. This is so fascinating. I love this. Yeah. So let's have you share a little bit about how you define alchemy, if you feel like there's more to say about that. And oh, yes, yes. Um, so alchemy um, started in the Sumerian Triangle, um, uh, Egypt, uh, about 2000 years ago, a little bit more, I would think. And it was a mixture of metallurgy, metals, of cloth making, of dye making, the coloring of cloth, of mummification. Mummification is the search for eternal life of the body. Um, it was a part of medicine. And all these elements came together, uh, herbology, all these medicines, all these elements came together. And in the beginning of our era, around the year zero, it started to create alchemy and then became very active in about the second century. And then it started to mix with Neoplatonism, Neoplatonism being that there are three worlds. There's the world of physicality, 
there's the world of spirit or mind or mathematics. And then in between, there is the reality of imagination. And the uh, imagination partakes both of eternity and of uh, mortality. It partakes both of the physical and the spiritual. It is an embodiment, a constantly constant embodiment of um, new forms. And um, so that stayed active until about <clears throat> the 13th century. And in the 13th century, things began to shift and we became Aristotelian as a culture. And we only had body and mind or body and spirit and that whole in-between realm of imagination as reality dropped out. And then slowly over the next 800 years, imagination became Disney World. And so um, it became the opposite of reality. But uh, in alchemy, imagination is a form of reality. And then um, the big shift started to happen in um, the 16th century where we beca became aware through Copernicus uh, and Kepler that um, we were not in the center of the universe. And um, then Galileo actually showed it by using technology as telescope. And that became too much for the church. And then um, science was banished because it was going into a direction that was decentering the human out of the universe. Mm. Wow. It seems like maybe with this return of understanding the, the value of imagination, the alchemy of imagination, that that becomes the center again, like what we thought was the center <laughs> was not. And mm. um, like there's this, it feels like a potential total shift in consciousness. Well, it's already happening in um, the little I understand in quantum physics that um, uh, we don't know what really is going on. There's in uncertainties built in everywhere and um, you cannot see velocity at the, uh, velocity at the same time as um, mass. And um, so um, there is a shift going on where we now realize that measurement creates reality. And thereby we're back in, into imagination, that imagination creates reality because we are connected to what we observe. And once we observe it, it changes. Mm -hmm. And so therefore imagination is becoming more important again and slowly that will develop. And that's why I'm so um, glad to have uh, coined the whole idea of embodied imagination, that we are constantly embodied by imagination and imagination always presents itself as embodied. And um, things that one culture holds for truth, another culture holds for imagination. And so um, we are living inside of imagination and we're trying to find out, is there anything, what is there beyond imagination? And that's the very important search. That's the search of science. What is there beyond imagination? But um, it's not easy. It's not easy to find and it's not easy to do. And um, um, uh, several of the people that I work with are physicists, uh, theoretical physicists, and they tell us how incredibly difficult it is to establish um, uh, facts. Um, and and uh, there are facts, but it's very difficult to establish them. And, and every time that you have in, in quantum physics uh, have something established, it decoheres again. And so... Yeah. Anyway. Because as you observe it, it changes. <laughs> yes, and so it constantly changes. Yeah. And, um, yeah. So I, I think imagination is becoming increasingly important again. And um, I think that there are there's a whole generation behind us who realizes that. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. It is interesting when you think of the new generations that replace us, right? It's just like when we have children, our children replace us. And when yes. a new generation comes, that right. generation and it's very interesting. I mean, I'm 74, so I have grandchildren that are replacing my children. Yeah. So that's a very interesting development as well. And um, yes, we're constantly, that's the great thing about uh, about this system that uh, was created by evolution or however it was created, that we die. It's a great thing because constant renewal has to happen. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. I was just reading about the brain and how um, the development of that moving from the amygdala to the prefrontal cortex, like every, um, it's, it's like a transcending and including, right? Transcends mm-hmm. yes, the limitation yes. of the past, but includes what's useful, right? It doesn't recreate the wheel. No, 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 no. It's like an onion. And um, also, um, it develops slowly in life. Um, uh, your prefrontal cortex doesn't come online till you're about 25 completely. And that's why you don't send a 25-year-old to war. You send um, an 18-year-old to war because an 18-year-old still think that they're immortal. Mm. I never thought of it that way. Mm, it's a bad way to think about it, but it's actually the truth. Mm. Mm. Well, let's talk about dreams. Would that be all right if we talk about sure, dreams absolutely. a little? I know that you have a summit coming up on the Young platform that you'll be a speaker for. And... Um, dreams are so fascinating and I'm a big dreamer and just Mm -hmm. really would love to have you share anything you think would be helpful for people to know about dreams well in the first place um, I don't know what dreams mean I don't know if they mean anything Um, in the same way that I don't know if the world that we are in in waking means anything. I don't know if this room means anything. I don't know if my talking to you means anything. I know that I'm talking to you. I know that I have this experience and I know that it's entirely real. So if I would like to work on our conversation, for instance, I would have to get back into this conversation and begin to experience again and feel it again with my whole body. So I have to return to the dream in order to start um, to work with the dream. And I do that by um, using the kind of memory that naturally happens um, for people who are traumatized. It's flashback memory. In a flashback, you're suddenly back into the event that traumatized you. So you're back in the event, you can smell it, you can hear it, you can feel it, and your whole body is involved. And that memory, that flashback memory, we artificially use, we artificially uh, access um, in order to go into the dream. And then we enter back into the dream and suddenly the dream surrounds you again. And then what I do is I help the person to feel that in their body, deeply in their body. And then I go and work on different perspectives. So for instance, if you have a dream in which you're chased by a dog, then you running away is a very different state than the dog going like this. And it's both dreamed. So if I can help you to feel it from the perspective of (gasps) running away and from the perspective of the dog, then you get two different perspectives in the body. And when you hold a multiplicity of different perspectives in the body, you get something that is called self-organization. This is complexity theory. Uh, Self-organization begins to happen when a very complex situation is so complex that it can no longer be contained in this dimension. Uh, You can see that in mathematics. Um, There are problems that can uh, be contained on a two-dimensional plane, but there are problems that are so complicated that you have to have a three-dimensional cube to understand it. So it is a dimensional shift. The dimensional shift starts to take place when you have a sufficient amount of of complexity and not too great a complexity because then you throw the whole system into chaos and then there's too much information coming in and it doesn't work anymore. In this complex state, self-organization begins to take place and then you get what is what uh, is called an emergent phenomenon. Something new begins to emerge that is qualitatively different from the state that it was before and that is the transmutational process and that's why i'm so interested in the relationship between dreaming and alchemy Mm -hmm. well said i love that it reminds me of that quote by carl sagan somewhere something incredible is waiting to be known yes 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 and that's constant that is that's why we just send a telescope two million miles into space to find something that we haven't seen before yeah, and it's the merging of two different fields, if you will, or two different, you know, substances like in alchemy, where you bring in this uh, fusion, right? Where there's fusion and there's something reactive between the two fields that 
bring something new into being. Do you call it like the transcendent function in psychology? Yes, well, uh, the difference between um, complexity theory and the transcendent function is that the transcendent function works in a polar system. Jung was a polarity thinker. Mm. He thought in, in opposites. I'm not. Um, I am a multiplicity thinker. I was trained by James Hillman, who is a multiplicity thinker. So I believe that a human being is a, simult a simultaneous um, multiplicity of states. And um, so, but this multiplicity of states, when it is contained and held, then something new begins to emerge, but it doesn't emerge just from two states, but from many states at the same time. So the difference between the transcendent function is that it comes from um, a polarity um, uh, premise and uh, complexity theory comes from a multiplicity premise. Mm. It makes me think of how like we reside on multiple planes of reality, right? And trying to line all those different planes up, that's a multiplicity versus yes. a if you If you believe, polarity. if you take it in that uh, paradigm of planes, that would be it. You can also take it in the paradigm of uh, mixing cocktails where if you put several things together and you shake it, you get something that tastes completely different than any of the ingredients by themselves or cooking. Yeah. Cooking and alchemy is very similar. I love cooking. Oh, good, good. Well, then you're an alchemist. You like to cook? No. <laughs> <laughs> I like restaurants. You like to cook up stories. Yeah, yes, absolutely, yes. Yeah. I uh, sometimes forget to eat for a day, and that's not oh. a good <laughs> I'll never forget to eat per day. <laughs> Not a problem for me. Uh, so the other thing that's happening is you're offering a course on Young Platform on originality. Can yes. You talk about that. I'm really curious about that. Yeah. Um, so um, where I start with originality is that um, going back to origins. And um, the notion of going back to origins is um, absolutely central in, um, in the thinking of what was called Neoplatonism, in the thinking of the reality of imagination. That when you, um, when you go back to the origin, you get to the spark where it all begins. And so... Um, so what I try to do in the course is to help people move back to the original spark, because um, in this day and age, and this is where after COVID, lots of people have lost their spark. And um, uh, if we can find a way to get back to the spark, which is the notion of alchemy, alchemy always tries to go back to the spark because the original entity in alchemy is the spark. Um, the creative spark, so that um, in this way we can move back to originality by getting to what sparks us. And I will give a lot of examples and techniques, very much techniques, how to get back to the spark. Well, I'm hoping to be part of that. Oh, that's good. That's good. It's interactive. So um, I I uh, usually talk for um, about 10 minutes and then we have uh, five or seven minutes of interaction. And then I talk again. And then the end, the last 20 minutes of it is um, exercises and experiments, mm -hmm. uh, consciousness experiments. And how do you see that related to nature, like being close to nature? I mean, you live in a beautiful place in the mountains, I believe, and yes. um, you have access to incredible beauty where you're at and yes. to me nature is where I connect to that spark and I, I yeah. feel like there's like a you know like a nature deficiency syndrome <laughs> um, yes I think that there are um, I think it was 10 years ago or 15 years ago that the majority of the world population was urban um, and so um and that is increasing. So in the next hundred years, the largest part of the population will be urbanized. And um, so, yes, uh, nature, nature is going to be um, missing, uh, missing in action. 
Um, and um, I think that, um, yes, there will be a little bit of nature, but it will be highly curated. So wild nature, like where I live, when I have to carry something in my pocket, uh, a strong whistle for if I meet a mountain lion and have to wear gaiters in order not to be attacked by rattlesnakes, that kind of nature is going to um, move more and more into the background. So we have to find a new relationship to nature. Maybe we can find a relationship to nature by way of virtual reality, maybe by way of dreaming, or maybe by having nature be in smaller places where you can still connect to it, um, like there are people that connect very well to nature by having plants. So there's all going to be all kinds of different ways um, of connecting to nature, but the majority of the people now already live in urban settings and nature is going to get the short sh uh, shrift and that's going to happen more and more. And yeah. there's something else that I didn't bring up before. In, um, in alchemy is about participation, right? And so um, the alchemist participates in the life of the metals because according to alchemy, everything's alive. So the alchemist participates in the life of the metals. And as the alchemist identifies with the metals, the metal can start to self-manifest. The metal can bring out its own life and the alchemist can partake, participate in the life of iron or copper or, and, um, and then work on it from that perspective. But it also means that we participate in everything. So we participate in the world around us, in the trees and in the mountains. And like, for instance, Aboriginal people um, would be um, participating in the world of the mountains where they live. And the mountains are dreaming their dreams. And so um, the great thing that happened, the great as difficult thing that happened was that as we became in this world of subject-object split, we were no longer participating in nature, we were no longer participating in the world, we were looking at the world objectively, so an increasing separation began to take place, and as that separation begins, begins to take place, the world around you is no longer alive and you can do anything to it that you want. And that was the beginning of the ecological crisis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm fascinated by that. How you're... But it is, it is inherent in our thinking. It is not just what we do and it is not just the big companies that do it. Yeah. We have this in our being that we are no longer participating in the world and that has to return. Somehow we have to start and that is also what I will do in this originality course. Somehow we have to get back to the sense of participation in the world. Because if you don't participate in the world, you also get a, a sense of being um, powerless because uh, you can't do anything. If you participate in the world, you get the power of the world and you can um, have much more sense of uh, agency and efficacy. Yeah, I, I feel strongly about that as well because um, we are designed to contribute something right like something wants to be given through us there's some creative well that that is the notion of alchemy the notion of alchemy is that we that um all metals desire to become gold mm -hmm. and um the, the desire to become gold is the desire to have greater value now Lots of people feel that they have greater value when they have more valuables like money. Um, but there is a desire deep inside of everything, according to alchemy, deep inside of everything is the desire to create more value and to create a more valuable world. And that's the gold. That's the gold of alchemy. So yes, it's very important for us to create value. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And are each of the planets associated with a metal like sun is gold and moon yes. is silver? Um, well, the, the, the notion of alchemy is that um, there is eternity, the stars, which is called the firmament. And the firmament is actually completely still. It's, a, it's for many alchemists, it's like onyx with black onyx with holes in it. And behind it is the power of God that is behind the onyx. And so the stars are not bodies but the stars are openings in the firmament um, and then there is a mortality that's us uh, the uh, sublunar world the world below the moon 
And, um, and then there is the world in between. And the world in between is the world of the wanderers. And uh, the word wanderers in Greek is planetos. And so that's the world of the planets, the wanderers. And um, they exist in between. They partake of eternity and they partake of mortality. So they are the in-between um, communicators between eternity and um, mortality, and they plant their seeds into the earth. So the very concentrated seed of Mars in the earth is iron, of copper, it is uh, of, um, of Venus, it's copper, of um, Jupiter, it's tin, of Mercury, it's mercury, of um, uh, which have, uh, Saturn is lead, um, I think I've had them all. And um, so they are seeds that are in the earth. So as the alchemist begins to work on these seeds, so when the alchemist begins to work on copper, then the seed of Venus begins to arise and that whole Venusian atmosphere is coming to the surface. So it, the alchemist works with Venus, the alchemist works with that whole beauty and love that is in copper. And um, so there's a constant working with the, what is called the daimones, the connectors between mortality and eternity. Yeah, and then there's a correspondence to everything. Yes, yes. Yeah. And, um, uh, and even more than a correspondence, it's, um, it's the creative seed. Mm -hmm. So uh, yes, it's a correspondence, but um, iron is the creative seed of Mars. So, and it's it, in our body, it's in our blood. Yeah, exactly. And, and we, um, that's, that's how actually, um, how placebo works. Placebo, we are a gigantic apothecary <laughs> and, um, and the placebo effect triggers the, um, the part of the apothecary that is necessary at that moment and therefore can have a healing effect. Yes, we are full of these uh, seeds mm. of the world. Yeah, there definitely feels like a connection between imagination and placebo, right? That's definitely well, it's the same thing. Uh, same thing, yeah. Involuntary. When I give you a pill and you are convinced that that pill will cure you, the chances that you will be cured are much greater than if I give you a pill that, or if I don't give you a pill. The interesting thing was that um, somebody did a research which I loved, which uh, he, in which he gave people who had um, a GERD, uh, the, um, uh, the way that um, acid comes up. And um, he gave them a pill that said placebo. He said, these are pills that do not work. They're just placebo, but now take it four times a day. And people took it four times a day. And the people who took it actually got much better than the people who didn't take it. So um, uh, the ritual of taking pills, the ritual of doing things, and the strongest ritual that we have is surgery. Um, the ritual already has a curing effect. There are, um, there are uh, researches of um, uh, heart surgeries that were done in the 50s that later on turned out to be completely ineffective on um, a level of uh, physiology, but people got healed by it because surgery has a very powerful placebo effect. Mm -hmm. Like a symbol. symbol yes, yes. Have yes. a powerful effect as and well. A, a symbol and a ritual. And you said earlier about how the planets are the in-between, the intermediary. Yes. Um, so, and... Prior to that, we were talking about imagination being the intermediary. So is there a correspondence there? Yes. Um, the, the notion is that um, the, uh, the intermediary is um, the world that takes on form, that has its own form, and that presents itself as fully embodied. Um, but it is neither physical nor is it um, uh, purely spiritual because spiritual you can only 
get in touch with by way of the intellect. This you can get uh, in touch with by way of your whole body and by way of all your senses. So it is this world in between and it's called the daimonic world, the world where um, the presences uh, present themselves as embodied and they were called the gods and um, therefore the planets are the gods. And so um, it is a form of uh, involuntary imagination that comes up in all mythologies all over the world. Mm -hmm. Well, this has been just so fun, this conversation. I really appreciate uh, yeah. how you can just go anywhere and bring it back to, distill it right back into the essence. Well, this distillation is one of the most important right. processes. It is indeed, right? I'm feeling it. I feel I feel something inside my being that is um, a spark. There's a spark. Well, that's the idea, right? The idea is that um, when you go to the core in science, when you go to the core of the atom in science, what you find is energy, right? That's uh, that's Einstein, and so um, uh, so that's nuclear energy. When in alchemy, you go to the core of things, to the atom, because the, uh, many of the alchemists were atomists as well. At, uh, uh, atomism comes from Democritus, uh, about a few hundred years BC in Greece. Um, and so they were atomists, but at the core of their atom, there was the creative spark. And so there was not just energy, but there was a quality of creativity that was right there. Mm -hmm. And so that if the alchemist was able to gather all the sparks from the core of matter together, then it would get pure creativity. And that was called red sulfur. And red sulfur, what, this, what my books are about, red sulfur is the condensation of all creativity that has existed before the creation of the cosmos. That's the notion of red sulfur. And therefore you can change it. it red sulfur is entirely free. You were talking about freedom before. Red sulfur is entirely free from all the, um, uh, um, from all the natural restrictions. And so it can transform one thing into another because it's free. Yeah, it's like raw material. Yes, it's um, uh, like stem cells in that way. It mm. can become anything. Mm. But it's stem cells plus uh, the instruction of how to create something else. Speaking of which, a lot of people, you know, with um, and more of this younger generation you were referring to earlier, are creating avatars, right? So they have this other identity that they become, they take on the, the imagination. And so I'm imagining that there's, those are interfacing, right? With our physical identity and the roles we play in life as we engage with life and our communities. Yeah. And then we have these other communities and um, environments we're engaging with through a different character. Yeah, that's the metaverse. And so, um, and um uh, Facebook has just uh, put its whole gamble on the metaverse. The metaverse is the place where you interact as avatars. And um, it's not just that uh, um, a generation, there, there was uh, a metaverse uh, during the height of the pandemic had uh, more than 400,000 users and they were all of your generation. So um, it is uh, transgenerational now. Um, where people interact as their avatar and as their avatar will get increasingly better then the avatar will become increasingly human you will be communicating with with humans that are not the literal person so you may be talking to a gorgeous man and it may turn mm -hmm. out to be a little child and so um, it's, it's, it will become increasingly um, complex mm. Mm -hmm. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm very curious about it. Of course, I have grandchildren too, so I'm I want to know what kind of world they're inheriting. Mm -hmm. And also, I thought what was really interesting in the metaverse was that basically the uh, avatars had a head and two hands, but they had no body, they had no legs. Right. I thought 
Well, that's sort of symbolic of how all our energy is up in our heads these days. Well, that's that's a technological problem because you have the um, you have the thing on your head, and so it can only and you have something in your hand, so that's the only thing it can read at the moment. It will get more the soon as soon as we have clothing, and um, so then it will become much more uh, a whole body. Um, I agree with Steve Jobs. I think that if you want to know about the future, you have to create it. And therefore I'm very involved in creating empathic artificial intelligence that can become your companions. And um, uh, I think that that's where the future goes. The future goes with um, that you will have empathic um, artificially intelligent companions and human companions and animal companions, all kinds of companions. And um, it will become increasingly um, mixed. That's why I call it the misaverse. <laughs> well, too bad we're out of time because we could go on and on. I'd love to talk to you more about that um, empathic. The, the empathy feels like in terms of our evolution as a species, we're going to have to um, increase our empathy to survive. Yeah, but uh, the problem is that um, the biggest a pandemic at the moment is the pandemic of loneliness and um, a vast uh, majority of people actually don't get to see anybody so they don't ever get to um, practice empathy because they're all alone and um, so I think that that is one of the things that we need to address very um, because loneliness has an incredible it takes seven years of your life it costs trillions of dollars and uh, it leads to all kinds of problems so um i think that um if we can work on that that would be great that's why i'm working on empathic ai mm -hmm. and feels really tied to the imagination as well yes, yes exactly yes yeah. Wow. Would you like to share your website or the organizations that you're part well, of? Well, I think that um, my, the website that I would like people to look at is Red Sulfur Saga, redsulfursaga.com. And I would like people to take a look at youngplatform.com, where they can find, um, I think, like 150 hours of my courses on alchemy. So um, if you're interested, redsulfursaga.com and youngplatform.com. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm interested. Thank you. I really, really enjoyed this conversation, Robert. Me too. I enjoyed it very much. And if you want me back, I'll come. Oh, really? Well, I would love to have you back. We'll talk okay. about that. I would okay. love to have you come up here too, to Avila Beach and do an in-person talk. We have a young um, society up here and we have guest speakers come. So yeah. I don't know if you're aware. Uh, I will I will see. I'm at the moment I am I'm traveling like a maniac. And uh -oh. so I don't know if I have the time, but um we can talk about it. Well we can put the invitation out there and if it's meant yeah, to happen it will appreciate it. All right. Well thank you everyone for tuning in to this great conversation. I'm just really pleased to be sharing this and um can't wait to get your books and um, see you on the young platform for the originality uh, piece that you're putting out, as well as the Dream Summit that's coming up the 23rd of yes, June. I think so that's what I believe. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, everyone. Bye for now. Bye bye. <laughs>